Good morning, church. My name is Chuck Marzon. I'm one of your elders. We're going to read today from the book of Colossians, uh, the first chapter. You'll find it in the uh, blue Bible in front of you on page 983. If you would, stand for the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's take a moment, be seated, and reflect on God's Word. Thank you, Chuck. It really is a pleasure to be here. It feels like, um, like homecoming, kind of in a way. Uh, this is the church, um, as I said the last time I preached here, um, where I really learned to believe and treasure and apply um, the gospel. Um, this is um, really the church that for the longest time, um, this is the, the only church we've really been married in. Now we have our membership across town at um, Christ the King Presbyterian Church. And um, as most of you know, I'm, I'm working as the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship, uh, RUF, at UNCW. And I just want to say thank you to this church for the way that you have encouraged us during this transition and prayed for us. And uh, so many of you um, have supported us uh, financially and and with your prayers. And this church supports RUF uh, very generously. And so we feel carried by this church and supported. This feels like um, y'all are our team and our family. So thank you. Um, Let's just pause for a moment to pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, I am so glad to be here. What a great morning to come before your word in Colossians. Would you take what is written here? Would you help me to proclaim it faithfully? And Lord, would you apply it to our hearts so that we would be changed? Would we live differently? Would we move out? Would our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our relationships, our households be different, more seasoned with grace, more full of the gospel because of our time here together this morning? Ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if we're honest, we all have moments in our life and in our our kind of faith journey when either because our faith has grown kind of familiar and stale, maybe we grew up in church 
And uh, then we go through a, a season of maybe not going to church so much or our friend groups kind of uh, change. Or maybe even uh, because, you know, we've been kind of walking in the gospel and going to church uh, for a while, and then we hear some new approach, some new teaching, or hear about uh, some book that offers a, a different perspective on the gospel, some kind of secret wisdom that we hadn't known before, and we think, maybe I'm missing out. I mean, maybe the faith that I grew up with, maybe the faith that I've just kind of assumed for most of my life, maybe it isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe there's something more out there. Maybe there's something more uh, valuable. Maybe there, there might be something out there that I can kind of leave this gospel for uh, that I can grab onto that's going to allow me to keep holding on to Jesus in some kind of way. But, I can, but then I can hold on to the things that the world offers too. Things that are more kind of immediately uh, gratifying. Paul was writing to the church in Colossae, a church that he had never met, uh, because they had heard of the gospel. They had been taught by a disciple of Paul named Epaphras. And the church was facing this kind of crisis in faith where new teachers were coming in. They were offering a different perspective and they were saying, hey, you haven't heard the whole story. There's a new teaching, there's a new revelation, there's a new wisdom that we have, and you got to let go of that old gospel that Epaphras used to preach, and you got to get with us. You got to get on our program, you got to join up with us, and then you'll really be fulfilled. Then you'll really have all the fullness and the freedom in the spirit that you were made to have. And so Paul is writing this letter to remind this church of the surpassing worth of the teaching they'd already received. And he's writing to confirm that there is no other path, that there is no other teaching, no other road that's going to bring them life. He's writing to reassure them of the incredible value of what they'd received through the preaching and teaching of Epaphras, their leader, their pastor, Paul's friend and disciple. So Paul's opening thanksgiving and prayer in this letter isn't just kind of a generic, you know, thank you, it's nice to see you, hope you're doing well. It's worded in a specific way to reassure the Colossians that they have indeed received the right message because some of them were in danger of letting go of this simple, humble spirituality that they had um, received and trading it in for something more impressive. Now, the best illustration I can find to kind of paint the picture for you is um, this illustration that I'm just blatantly stealing from a preacher named Tim Keller. So I just want to give credit where credit's due. But just imagine for a moment that uh, there's a woman who uh, has this simple old piece of jewelry, maybe a, a brooch, that's been handed down from her great-grandmother. And it's been in the family for so long, no one really remembers where it came from. So it just kind of sits on her dresser, you know, with other earrings and accessories and stuff, and it just kind of gathers dust. And so, you know, one day this woman decides to go to a jeweler and have it appraised and see if it's actually worth anything. And so she takes this, this kind of old piece of jewelry in and she brings it to the jeweler and she's asking, okay, is this old thing that we've had really worth holding on to? Or maybe should I trade it in for something else? And so she walks into the jeweler and you know what jewelers do. They kind of go in and he takes out his little magnifying eye thingy and he you know, sticks it in his eye and he starts to look at the diamond. 
He starts to look at the stone in, in the setting. And, you know, Matt, you probably know this. Other people who are recently engaged or bought something special for a, a loved one, they would know that, you know, the four things that a jeweler looks for to really see uh, the, the, the value and the genuineness of a jewel, are, they all start with C. He's looking for color. He's looking for carrot, which just means, you know, size. Uh, he's looking for cut. He's looking for clarity. And these criteria, as he looks at them, is going to tell you both if your jewel is authentic and also just how valuable it is. Now, in this section, Paul is not going to give us four criteria. He's just going to look at two, two criteria to evaluate the church. And he says, I'm going to look at these two things. I'm going to kind of take my little eye thingy. I don't know what those things are called. I'll call it an eye thingy. I'm going to look at that and I'm going to tell if your church is an authentic work of God. And I'm going to be able to tell by looking at these two things. One, I'm going to be able to see that you are actually true Christians. And number two, I'm going to see that you actually have received the true message. This church, their faith is genuine. Their faith is real because they are true Christians, true members of the family of God, and they've received the true message. He's going to look both at the fruit of Epaphras' ministry kind of what, what it's built in their life, the evidence in their character. And then he's going to look at the root, the gospel seed that was planted there through Epaphras' preaching. So first, we're just going to look in uh, verses four and five for this. The first point, he's going to say, be grateful, church. Treasure this because I can see you are genuine Christians. Starting in verse four, we heard... We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So Paul is looking at the reports of this church. He's getting this message back and somehow he sees sufficient evidence in what he's heard about this church to say that they do in fact have the full authentic Christianity that was handed down to him by Christ. How can he see this? How can Paul be so sure? How can Paul know Well, he's looking at the fruit of the spirit and he's looking at not kind of, you know, the full list of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians, but he's using a kind of summary or shorthand by using these three qualities, faith, love, and hope. Paul and others in the early Christian world, they use these three qualities together as a kind of basic description of what a genuine Christian is. And as we'll see, Paul never assumes that these qualities just spring up naturally. Some of us might be naturally quick to believe. Some of us might be naturally loving in a way or naturally kind of hopeful in a kind of way. But he's not talking about that. Paul is going to show us a certain kind of faith and love and hope that are supernatural evidences of God's work in us. Now, uh, Think about this. Um, if, as you're traveling over to Wrightsville Beach, you know that, that, that first bridge, when you come over um, the first drawbridge, if you look on the left, there's a, a pretty remarkable thing. It's Palm Tree Island. It's a little, uh, you know, sandbar island. Some people call it the Dominican Republic because it, you know, kind of grows and, and then shrinks with the tide. And you look out there and, and you would be, if you were new to town, and you looked out there on that island, you'd be excused uh, if you believed that that palm tree that's there on the island just kind of got there naturally, right? You might not know that palm trees, as my friend told me, only grow uh, south of the Cape Fear. 
So Bald Head Island is the, the farthest north that palm trees naturally grow. So that's just for you. So if you see a, ball, uh, uh, you know, a palm tree up here, it didn't get there by accident. Someone put it there. But if you, even if you didn't know that about the palm tree, as you came closer to the Dominican Republic, what you would see is another artifact that didn't get there by accident. And that is what? A parking meter, an old rusting parking meter that someone put there like 10 years ago to anchor your boat so they could just kind of, you know, hitch up and have a little party on the island. Now, those two things didn't get there by accident. If you were just walking along, you could say, I know that somebody intervened. Someone came here and they planted this there because it didn't just grow up naturally. Paul is looking at faith, hope, and love, and he's saying, church, if you have these things, they didn't get there by accident. That is evidence, not just of a human intervention, but of a divine intervention in the life of the church. So Paul is going to look at faith, hope, and love. First, verse four, faith in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks about faith first, I think, because it's so central to Christianity. It's the instrument, uh, humanly speaking, by which we are made right with God. Paul writes in Romans that the source of our very life in God is faith. The justified, he says, the forgiven, the right. How do they live? They live by faith. And for Paul, faith is not, remember, the opposite of doubting. It's not just a sureness, right? Faith is not the opposite of doubting. For Paul, faith is the opposite of earning, Paul states that this is a faith in Christ Jesus. You're trusting in something about Christ Jesus. What are you trusting about, about Christ Jesus? This is what the New City Catechism says. Faith in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Faith in Christ is trusting that Jesus' death pays the penalty you owed for your sins and that no other payment is needed by you. That's what faith in Christ Jesus is all about. That's why faith is not the opposite of doubting. Faith is the opposite of earning. Now that faith is the vertical dimension that Paul's looking at from from kind of man to God. But then Paul goes on to evaluate the, the horizontal dimension of spirituality, our love for one another. Verse four, he moves on. He says, we have heard of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul sees a certain kind of love in the church that the world cannot produce or understand. What is it? It's a wide love. It's an inclusive love. It's a universal love in a way. It's a love that's no respecter of persons. It's a love for the entire family of God. Now you have to remember that this Colossian church was was in Turkey. It's a Greek-speaking church. It's separated culturally from the Jewish center of the early Christian movement. There's a different language. There's a different ethnicity. Yet even across these barriers, there's this deep, powerful love and care and even service that this church has demonstrated for people that look nothing like them, that don't speak like them, that don't eat the same kind of foods they do, that don't dress the same way. And this love springs from the truth that comes from the gospel that we are all one in Jesus 
We are all members of one great body. And just like it would be strange for, you know, a hand to not care for and, and kind of share blood and resources with a foot, even though they look differently, even though they do different things. It'd be strange and abnormal for this church that's way off in Colossae not to love and care for and share with the other members of the body that are scattered throughout the ancient world. This is a church that has love for all of the saints. You know, we have this tendency sometimes, I think, to look at cultural differences among different Christians and to think of them as deficiencies, right? The thing that makes you different than me makes your expression of faith deficient. Now, we're not talking about a difference in doctrine, right? We're not saying you don't believe in the resurrection or something. We're saying, you know, if you just are culturally different, if you're more emotionally expressive or, or you dress a different way, you know, or you preach for longer or a shorter amount of time and you sing different kinds of songs, there's a tendency to look at differences as deficiencies instead of seeing them as the mark of a wildly creative God who calls all kinds of people to know him and to be a part of his family because it takes a diverse group of people to accurately reflect the image of God. This is what this theologian, Herman Bovink, who has one of the all-time greatest beards in history, says... He says, the image of God is much too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however richly gifted that human being may be. It can only be somewhat unfolded in its depth and riches in a humanity counting billions of members. The image of God can only be displayed with all its dimensions and characteristics in a humanity whose members exist both side by side in the world and also spread out throughout time. You want to know what the image of God looks like? Go to the end of the Bible in Revelation where every redeemed person from every tribe, tongue, and nation in all of human history is standing and singing. What language are they singing in? I don't even know. But it's glorious and it's beautiful because of the diverse picture of the creativity of God. And that love, that wide, inclusive love for all of the people of God, Paul said, I see that in this church. I see that you know what he's going to say later later in, in his letter, that in Christ there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But you know, church, that Christ is all and in all. We are all a part of God's family. But this vertical dimension faith and this horizontal dimension love they don't stand on their own and this is really important to remember paul is arranging this triad here to emphasize hope as the foundational virtue the virtue that that faith and love kind of spring out of he says faith and love this faith and love are because of the hope laid up for you in heaven why does he do this Paul is going to emphasize hope throughout this whole letter. And I think he does it because there's a danger that this church is running and that we run every day of thinking that our Christian lives are only about what we do in this life. That we might think, oh, I got to get faith. I got to believe in Jesus. I got to make a decision for Christ and get my sins forgiven. There you go. I got to get love. I got to love other people. I got to do good things. And you think, okay, faith and love, that's what the Christian life is about, right? Yes. 
But it's not all the Christian life is about. Paul is going to say that if that's the sum total of your Christianity, just get saved and do good to others, you are in danger of making a terrible mistake. Because there's a third dimension, the dimension of time, and we don't want to forget it. Faith and love are anchored by something. A true Christian sees themselves and their lives in this world right now as existing in two places at once, both on earth and also in a way that's no less real, in a way that's no less true, even if you don't feel it every day. Your life isn't just on earth. Your life is also in heaven, hidden with Christ in God. That's what the hope dimension is about. We live both on earth and we also have our lives in heaven. And what he means by this is that we are looking forward as believers every single day when we wake up to the day when Jesus will return he will wipe every tear from our eyes and he will make, like we sang, all things new again. And death will finally be defeated and the lamb will reign from his throne forever and ever. And this hope is a future hope. It's something we don't experience uh, right now. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Which is why patience is one of the cardinal virtues. It's one of the the fruit of the spirit. How much is patience a part of your life as a Christian? Now, one of the main tricks of a false teacher, of a kind of novel uh, philosophy or, 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 or teaching or Christian movement is that they try to take the promises that God holds for us in the future and drag them down right now. And you'll hear this and you'll read this and you'll see this all over the place. You'll hear a preacher, you'll hear a song where it says something like, okay, we're just gonna sing heaven down to earth. We're gonna pray and drag God's blessings right now. Drag all the healing, drag all the satisfaction, drag all the experience that that we're looking for in the future. We're gonna bring it down here right now. You don't even have to wait for it. No patience required, no suffering, no cross required. You get the crown already. And that is a lie. That is not the gospel. Because our faith and our love are anchored by hope. There is something that we do not yet see or experience in this life. Paul is saying, you need to remember that your hope is not here. Your hope is not in your experience of worship in this world. Your hope is not in your experience of spiritual blessing and spiritual power and spiritual gifting in this life. Your hope is that one day all these dreams will come true. Everything bad will come untrue. There will no longer be any dying or crying. No more suffering. No more pain. The Christian life here is a life of waiting, of waiting in faith for what God has promised. The hope is future, but Paul also says that that this hope is secure. And I want you to know this. Just because you don't see it right now, just because uh, you don't see uh, the full morning that the sun is just kind of barely coming up over the horizon, it doesn't mean that morning isn't on the way. It doesn't mean that you can't count on these things. Because Jesus' resurrection body 
is our deposit to know that we one day connected to him will be risen to, that we will be healed, that we will be made new. And that's a sure thing that we have. Paul says this hope is hidden for us in Christ, that this hope is laid up for us. It's stored for us in heaven. And that means it's where moth can't touch it, rust can't touch it, a thief can't steal it. It's stuck with God. He's holding on to it for us and he's never going to let it go because there's nothing bigger than God. There's nothing better than God. There's nothing more beautiful than God. No one's going to take us or our hope out of his hands. That's what Paul is saying. So this faith and love that we have, they spring from this message of hope, this expectation of something that Jesus has promised to do, that we know he's faithful to keep his promises. Paul sees these virtues as evidence of a divine intervention. And he says, Colossians, I can see that you really are true believers. You're true members of God's family. He reassures them of the genuineness of their spirituality. And then he moves on to remind them of the truth of the message they've received. And this is the second point. Paul says, be grateful, church, because you have heard the true message. Look at verse five, the second half. He says, of this, of this hope, this future hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. And indeed, in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, maybe the new teachers who are coming into Colossae, they were sowing doubt in the minds of the people. Maybe they were saying something like this. Epaphras hasn't given you the whole message. There's more teaching. There's a, there's a secret revelation from God that we have that he didn't give to you. Maybe they're trying to drive a wedge between their pastor and the rest of the church. And so Paul comes in reassuring them. He says, you've heard it right. You have the right message. Epaphras is, as he says, a faithful minister who delivered the genuine gospel message to you. What do we notice from Paul's description of this gospel message. First, verse five, it comes as a word. Huh, interesting, right? A word, just a teaching, like, like I'm doing right now, just preaching, just, just someone speaking, that's, that's how it comes. Um, that sounds so normal, sounds so unextraordinary. Notice, uh, Paul says the gospel doesn't come as a demonstration of power. It doesn't come as, you know, images. It doesn't even come in deeds. He says, you know how sometimes people will say something like this, and I've said this before. So I think we mean well when we say this, but it's just not true. Um, People say, preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. Now, the implication is that you can preach the gospel without using words. But that's impossible because the gospel is a word. It has content. It's a preached message. How are they going to know who to believe in if you don't preach to them? If you don't tell them why you're doing the deeds that you're doing? And so, of course, what they mean is, you know, add deeds to your words. But what Paul is saying is that You can't leave out the words because the gospel is a word. The gospel is a teaching. It has content. And no matter the time, no matter the culture, God is rescuing and redeeming his people 
through words. But not only that, we notice that God is the word of the truth. And this might even be more difficult to swallow. (laughs) The truth. Paul doesn't say it's a truth. He doesn't say it's Epaphras' truth or, hey, the gospel is my truth. What's your truth? Um, He says the gospel is, and this is really difficult to grasp today. The gospel is the truth. The gospel is narrow. The gospel makes a universal claim on every single person to believe the truth and embrace the truth and to walk in the truth. Paul is saying there is only one way to be saved and Jesus is that way. Jesus isn't just a way. Other people may come along. They might propose some other truths to you. And Paul is saying, and I think we we can recognize that there are some other little t truths out there, even from a a kind of a non-Christian source that we can go, yes, that's something that's little t true. You've made a true observation about the world because God gave you intelligence and, and insight and reason, and you can kind of see some kind of little t truth, but there is only one capital T truth, and that is the message of the gospel. It is the true truth the comprehensive claim to reality that all of our truth claims need to bow to. Paul is saying that Christianity isn't just a message. It's a worldview. It's a way of looking at all reality so that it's in line with the truth that has been revealed to us from God in his word. And this message is narrow. It's the truth. But if this message is narrow, it's also gloriously wide. It's also gloriously universal. Look at this, what he says. He says, in the whole world, this truth is bearing fruit and increasing just as it did among you. Paul is saying, if you're going to see the value of the message you've received, you need to look up. You need to look out and see how this same message is working all over the world. One of the most... encouraging experiences uh, for me is to do what the college students are going to do where you go to a different country, a different culture, and you see that the very same gospel message, we are sinners. We need a savior. Jesus died a violent death on a cross to pay for your sin and he rose bodily from the grave and he's holding out salvation and forgiveness and, and membership in the family of God to all who believe. And one day he's coming back That gospel message, that same message is what everyone needs to hear across the whole world. You can go to Jordan and that same message is bearing fruit right now. You can go to India and that same gospel message is bearing fruit right now. You can go to any part of the United States. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter the background. It doesn't matter what people are into. It doesn't matter what style they are. That same message is bearing fruit it was the, the funniest thing. I, I was at a conference um, with Pete, uh, with my friend, and um, I was hanging out with some people from this largely African-American church in the, the D.C. area. And because I was helping out with music at Christ Community, I was going, okay, so what kind of songs do you guys really like to listen to? So like, and I was thinking they were going to like break out this awesome gospel song that I had never heard before, and I'd be able to bring it back. And this is what this woman said. She was, it was so great. She said, oh, we love that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. 
And I was like, really, that song? It's written by a Scottish guy <laughs> or an Irish guy or something. And, and then she said, oh, there's this other song. It's my favorite song to sing. You know, this like 75-year-old Af- African-American woman, she said, it's called He Will Hold Me Fast. And I was like, really? <laughs> we love that song too. And she's like, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Isn't the gospel great? And I thought, yeah, it is. It is, and it's the same message that we all need to hear. And do you know why? It's that same message that we all need to hear. This is what this um, psychologist, Kurt Thompson, says. I don't even know if he's a believer, but this is what he says, and it's true. Um, From the moment we're born, every single human being longs to see one thing, a human face looking back at them, noticing them, loving them, welcoming them into the world. That's what every single person is created for. And that's what the gospel shares. The gospel says, you have a God who has made you and is regarding you right now with fatherly love and affection, who wants to provide for you, who wants to bless you, who wants to clothe you with beauty, who's looking out for you, who's running after you. That's a message that every single person needs to hear. That's why the same gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. And this message of the gospel, Paul says, is a message of grace. I mean, that's that picture, right, of of God loving us before you could do anything to deserve it. You, you know what grace is. Grace is that, that disposition of God to bless us even when we haven't done anything to deserve it. Grace is, is the truth that because of what Jesus has done for us, God will never love you any more than he does right now that there's no good thing that you can do that could increase his love for you by one iota. That if you are in Christ, there's no bad thing that you could do that could erase his love for you. That you are utterly secure. That God's love has been set on you and he will never take it away. Do you believe that? And if you really do believe that and it sounds too good to be true, it changes you. You don't just kind of rest on your laurels. You, you get out and you do something about it. This is what Paul says in Titus. He says, this grace of God that's appeared, it brings salvation for all people. And what does it do when it appears? It trains us. If we really understand the gospel, if we really understand grace, it trains us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait for our blessed hope, as we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace saves us, grace keeps us, and grace trains us. It moves us out. It puts us to work. Because of grace, we know we are as loved by God as we ever will be, and that all our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for. And if you really do believe that, You'd treasure it. You'd protect it. You'd proclaim it. 
Have you understood the gospel as a message of grace? Would you, would you say that? Paul says, you know, this gospel is the message of grace. Do, do you treasure it as a message of grace? Does it sometimes sound too good to be true? Uh, Paul wants us to see that grace is the reality that we live in as believers. And if we abandon it, if we try to upgrade it, if we try to add to it, we do so at our peril. I just want to close with this one illustration, just kind of coming back to that picture of the the woman in in the jeweler's store, right? Because it's not enough to know that something is true that this message that we received is true. We aren't called just to believe in the grace of God. We're called to glory in it. We're called to enjoy it. We're called to worship God. And I think that's what Paul's trying to do in this letter. He's trying to wake us up to see the glory of what we already have in Christ, to see the goodness of what we already have in the gospel. So imagine, if you will, that we're back in that jeweler's store. And the jeweler's there and he's, you know, he's got the eye thingy on and he's, he's turning the brooch around and he says, oh, it's definitely real. But then as, as he examines it deeper, he catches his breath. He starts to gasp and he turns it over again. And in fact, he, he starts to sweat and then his little eye thingy pops out and, and he looks up and he begins to tell this woman, This piece of jewelry has been made with a craft that people do not know how to do anymore. That in fact, that people like me have been looking for this lost piece of jewelry for hundreds of years. And we thought it was lost to history. And now you walk into my shop and you're bringing this to me. And ma'am, you asked if it's valuable. It's worth more than every jewel that I have ever seen put together. It is utterly priceless. It's utterly unique. There's none like it. And then he hands it back to her. How then does she live? What does she do with it? She's going to stick it back on the dish on her dresser, let it collect dust. No. She's going to guard it. She's going to treasure it. She's going to glory in it. How would she think about her her financial security, about about the rest of what she has, about about the state of her family? She's going to go, no, no, we're we're set. We're protected. We're we're good. What if someone tried to, to add to it? Or, or distort it or deface it in some way, what would she do? No, she'd guard it. She'd fight. She'd give her life to protect it. Why? Because it's precious. Because it's unique. Because it's valuable. Church, do you see that what we have in Christ is something that the prophets who came before us long to see? That you stand right now at a place that Abraham and Moses and David would have never dreamed of. That in this Bible, (laughs) we have things, we have truths that people died to get in here. And that if you brought this to the Apostle Paul, he, he wouldn't even, well, first of all, he wouldn't know how to read it because it's in English. But second of all, he'd be undone with joy to see the treasure that we have, to see how perfectly the gospel message has been preserved. Do you see the preciousness of the grace you have in Christ? If you do, treasure it, protect it, 
rearrange your whole life around it to keep it, but do not throw it away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, sit here and as we prepare to eat uh, this communion meal together as brothers and sisters, as, as we um, come here to, to renew our vows uh, to you, would you help us to see the glory of the gospel that has come to us in your word and in your servant, Jesus. Father, would you help us to rest in your spirit, to grow us and to shape us more in your image. And Father, would you carry us through your power to that final day when our expectation meets our experience and we get to see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.